Well, happy Monday, everybody. Happy President's Day today. Happy President's Day. But even more importantly, yes. what is today? Today is NASCAR Monday. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, cars don't typically roll on Mondays, but today they're rolling on Monday. In the da- Not only are they rolling on Monday, but it is the biggest race of the year. Yes. It's such an odd thing that in NASCAR, the biggest race of the year, the race that all of the drivers want to win, teams want to win more than any other, yes. is the first race of the season. It's yep. like starting the season with the Super Bowl. It is. It's, it is it's, what it's very like. strange in NASCAR that they do that, but they do, and it's been such terrible weather in Daytona that they... rained all weekend, so everything got rained out. But fortunately, I have it set to record yes. on cable, and I have it set to record on YouTube TV. Don't tell anybody, but we pirate that. Not pirate it, but Matt gave us, my son Matt gave us his sign-in. So we have YouTube TV as well. So both of them are set to record. So one is certainly going to. So after class today. And you know the reason he did that, because he knows that I would constantly be Googling updates. <laughs> Daytona 500. Right. So it's all set to record. Yes. And um, we will, right here, I'll post today's class. And then we will settle yes. in. Yes. For 500 miles. Yes. Now, I have to be honest, I do cheat a little. <laughs> On times like this where we're going back and, you know, we're going to be catching up for an hour or more than an hour, um, we'll start watching it and we'll zip through a little bit of it and we'll, and we'll stop for all the restarts until we caught oh, up. Oh, not today. Not with the Daytona 500. Really? We'll just fast forward through the commercials. Wow. Is all yes, it's it's all no, okay. We'll know. see, we'll see. Yeah, so, so anyway, that's yeah, that's us today yes. on this on this gorgeous Monday. It's lovely outside. Um, there's still a little, it's a little nippy in the air, yes. but that's that's wonderful and it's sunny and the forecast is good. And we're all here back to resume our journey through numbers, which we are not that far from finishing, okay, because of the things that come up. We're not going to read every verse of every vowel because they're just so similar. And so we will continue to progress, I think, probably pretty well toward the end. And then we will go to the New Testament. Because we've been in the Old Testament a long time now. Yes. And where are we going in the New Testament? I'm going to surprise you. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty well set on this. Okay. Second Corinthians. Okay. Which we've never done. I've never done. I've never taught it like this. I've never done it like I've done 1 Corinthians many times in many different settings. I know the book pretty well. 2 Corinthians I know parts of and I I quote parts of, but this treatment from the last first verse to the last verse never did it. So, that's what I think I want to do. It'll be good for us. It'll be good for me. Okay. You know. And I just want to be sure that I have this right so then everybody else would have it right. Second Corinthians is actually a complete and separate letter from First Corinthians. Yes. And Second Corinthians is probably actually two letters that were pieced together. Okay. Two letters Paul wrote that were pieced together by the early church and circulated in that fashion. Gotcha. First Corinthians very much a, is an, a single piece, of course. But, but a lot of scholars think, but it doesn't matter. Whatever's there is there. It's going to be Paul's teaching and, and a lot of good stuff in there. So that'll be good, I think. The only reason I said that, because some of the books in the Old Testament, of course, you yes. know, because you taught us all this, that it's not really a separate book. It's just that they had to start a new scroll. Samuel is cut into two pieces. 
Kings is cut into two pieces. Yeah. Chronicles is cut into two pieces. That is not the case right. in the New Testament Completely for different. the Corinthians, for um, Thessalonians, for First um, Peter, Second Peter. Those are all everything in the New Testament is a separate piece of writing, not something very long that's cut in half yeah. like Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Yeah, very good. All righty. You know your stuff, don't you, Patty? I tr I'm trying. I'm yeah, trying. we're all trying. We're all trying. I've had 20 some know. odd years of, uh, you know, being under the direction of a great leader. Well, the, <laughs> all I know is the more time I spend in the Bible, the more humble I get because oh. there's always more. There's always, 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 uh, always, every time there's more questions and more thoughts. And, you know, I would kind of like once in a while for it to be incredibly straightforward, but it's usually not that way. And I think that's, that's, that's just probably reflects the way of, of our life with God. So in any event, everybody, we're going to start. How we're about really that, Patty? Glad, we're very glad that you're here. Very glad that you're here. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful to return to the book of Numbers, this, this very ancient piece of writing that is difficult and at times a little bit boring and at times surprising and at times quite violent and it raises lots of questions in our mind but uh, help us to dig a little deeper um, and see in these pages um, the revelation of yourself and the truth about who we are in this world we live in all this we pray in Jesus's name amen amen Alrighty. all right Patty's gonna go around to the other side yes. I'm gonna do the little camera work here I'm so glad we're not muted or something strange today <laughs> like that. So Yes, we're sorry. Anybody who was online yesterday that mm. didn't get the sound. Yeah, Sunday, my Sunday class in the streaming was that uh, was a technical problem. Something was wrong. They're gonna have they're gonna be able to fix it. But um it wasn't something that could be fixed on the fly. So Always. in any event, we will um press on and um but we, for those who followed my Sunday class, we don't have class next Sunday because the room has been taken by the prom closet, which is a wonderful mission. We're happy to let them use it. Um, but on March 3rd, I'm going to begin a series called The Suffering of God from an Old Testament perspective, which is, I don't think, where most people come to on that. So we're going to see, um, we're going to meet the God who suffers in the Old Testament for a few weeks leading up to Easter. So, hey, all right, I my friends. I just saw on here that John Hickman is watching. John, we're so glad that you're there. We hope you and Gayla are are doing better. We've all been praying for you. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to continue yes, to yes, pray yes. for you guys. Yes, yes, yes. I know you're having a difficult time, so very glad to see you were watching. Okay. So, last time we finished up Chapter twenty-seven. Um, we are we are still encamped um, east of the Jordan River, and um, but the and the first generation has passed away. The second generation, right, is is now the ones that that we're talking about here. So the rebellious generation that wouldn't go forward, wouldn't trust God. And go into um, 
Canaan has been wandering. You're not really wandering very much. It's not like they're just wandering lost. They're just not going to enter the promised land until that generation has died off. And they have now. Um, some by natural causes, some because of plagues and other things that they bring upon themselves by their rebellion against God. Uh, but now it's the new generation. And last week we went through the census of this new generation. And we saw that it was just like getting the first generation ready to leave Mount Sinai and head to the promised land. That was in the first part of the book of Numbers. So now we've got the second generation. Still the same tribes um, encamped around the tabernacle in the same way. Let me put that slide up. Um, two, there we go. Still this same, this same plan. This just how the tribes encamp around the tabernacle, um, but it's the second generation. This this generation that is actually going to cross um, uh, into the promised land, and Joshua and Caleb will cross into the promised land, but Moses will not. He is still alive, but but he will not cross over into the promised land because of his disobedience, which is. Sort of really, you know, all of this is passed down among the Jews from generation to generation to generation to generation, and it all has a point. It is all theological. None of it is merely record-keeping. It's all theological. And, and so much of it is focused on understanding the the rebellion against God, the, the, which is constantly replayed over and over and over and over again. <coughs> so in and amongst this, there is a lot of teaching for the tribes and a lot of things that God gives them that they are to do in order to live in their proper relationship with God. <coughs> And chapter 28 is um, filled with a lot of instruction about offerings. So, look at 28.1. I'm not going to read all the way through that. Okay, this, the first set of offerings is the offerings to be made every day. And these are offerings made for God. Um, remember, there are two basic types of offerings. One is a burnt offering where the animal is completely burned up. Um, the other kind is the fellowship offering where the animal is basically barbecued and shared between the people, right? So it's kind of like God throws a barbecue. Um, there are drink offerings or are grain offerings. They all reflect um, this, this giving back to God. the best of what the Israelites have because all that they have has been given to them by God. That's the teaching going on with the offerings, that you are giving back to God a portion of what God has given you and it should be the best portion. So it's always the best grain, the best animal, and so on. But look down at verse 9. We have a little thing about a Sabbath offering. So this would be an offering made every Saturday, right? Because Saturday is the Sabbath day. Verse 9, On the Sabbath day, make an offering of two lambs, a year old, without defect. 
They're supposed to be perfect, unblemished, the best of the best of the best. Together with its drink offering and a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah, certain weight, doesn't matter, of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. So this is not a fellowship offering. The, these animals are not going to be barbecued and eaten uh, by the Israelites or by the priests. It's, it's all going to be burnt up. The aroma of it will go up. The aroma of it is pleasing to God, is the uh, phrase in the Old Testament, um, and reflects the people's devotion to God and their willingness to offer God what God should have. Then there is a monthly offering. And we'll read through this one, why don't we? Verse 11. Because we had daily, then Sabbath, now monthly. On the first of every month, present to Yahweh a burnt offering, again burnt, of two young bulls, not lambs, bulls, one ram and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. So all in all, that is ten animals. With each bull there is to be a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. With the ram, a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. And with each lamb, a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. So, you know, it's interesting because it's like this little progression in things. It's not all just thrown together. It's all very very orderly. God, I'm going to expand on this. God is a God of order, not chaos. Order. In the few descriptions, the visions of the throne room of God in the Bible, the throne of God is surrounded by a sea that is as smooth and calm as glass is just utterly calm and that is because there is no chaos as opposed to the oceans of our world which are you know destructive and can be filled with chaos and of which the hebrews were were the israelites were were frightened so i was reading today this morning maybe it was yesterday something written by a um, fella named Chad Bird. He is an Old Testament scholar. He tweets a lot with short, pithy little teachings on the Old Testament, and they're pretty good. So if you're a Twitter person and you want to check him out, his name is Chad Bird, just like it's like a bird that flies. Chad Bird. He's got a beard and looks kind of Old Testament-y. But he was talking about the plagues in Egypt. And he said the plagues, what that, what's really happening with the plagues in Egypt in the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, God and the Pharaoh, is that each of these plagues is a disordering of creation. Creation is good slash very good. Creation is orderly. It proceeds smoothly. And each plague is a disordering of creation. That's what's happening in them. Because it's like God withdraws his hand 
from the creation, a disordering of creation. So when we see in the world places or times when the world is utterly chaotic, anarchy, disorder, that is not God's way. God's way is order um, because order is where peace can be achieved. You're not going to find peace in anarchy and chaos. Peace, shalom, you're going to find um, when, there is, when there is order, when there can be when there can be justice. Okay? So, here the, the instructions about these monthly offerings proceed in a very orderly manner. Scott? Yes. Linda Rivera was asking, is this a per family or per person offering? Or this is from the This is from the whole, this is from all of Israel. Okay. Okay? So, all together they only need to offer up I, 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 that's the way I read it. I, I think that's, um, uh, that this is for the tribes. So how the tribes decide who contributes gives it turns, because it's all administered by the priests, right? Yes. So the Levites are the ones who assist the priests in this. But yeah, I mean, it would bankrupt any family. There aren't many families that are going to have two young bulls, a ram, and seven male lambs. So they are assembled from the tribes. How that happens, I don't know. Okay. Verse 14. With each bull there is to be a drink offering of half a hen of wine. You know, wine across the Old Testament is a blessing for the people. Um, a, an important metaphor of the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel, the people, Israel, um, they're a vineyard and God is the vineyard owner even carried into the New Testament when Jesus says, I am the true vine. That's a, that's a grapevine in a, in a vineyard for the making of wine that's in view there. So the drink offering is to be some wine with the ram, a third of a hen, and with each lamb, a quarter of a hen. This is the monthly burnt offering to be made at each new moon during the year. Now, why the new moon? I don't honestly pay much attention to the new moon. Um, but f the Israelites do not operate like you and I do on a solar calendar sure. with 12 months. They have a lunar calendar. They have 13 months. Each month begins with the new moon, right? right. Is that right, Patty? Yes. I think so. Yeah. So this is the monthly bird offering to be made at each new moon during the year. Besides the regular bird offerings with its drink offering, one male goat is to be presented to the Lord as a sin offering. And notice how that is set apart okay, from the other offerings. This is a sin offering. This, this, whole, stru what's it, this whole structure is about enabling a holy God to dwell with a sinful people. The whole priestly system, the system of sacrifices, all of this is a way. They're all the means by which a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't what? It doesn't cure their sinfulness. 
right? That doesn't come until Jesus. In Jesus, our sins are literally swept away and we are declared righteous by God and we are reconciled to God. As Peter writes, where we become a holy nation in Christ. But here, it's like it, this system of priests and sacrifices is like um, uh, a cast that you would put on a leg. It's helpful. It enables you to get around. But it isn't the cure. Right. When you put the cast on, your leg is still broken. Right. It doesn't instantly fix your leg. Right? right? So, all right. So that's a monthly offering. So we have daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, and then we come to the path Passover. The Passover is this monumental um, festival in Israel. There are three main festivals, and in the next paragraphs, we're going to visit all three. Passover in the early spring, the Festival of Weeks, which is an early harvest. That's what you and I know as Pentecost. And then in the fall, tabernacles or booths. So all three are going to be dressed in this because addressed in this because they're all part of what constitutes these people's life with God. So let's let's read through the Passover bit here. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the Lord's Passover is to be held. On the fifteenth day of this month, there is to be a festival. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. Now, why do they eat bread made without yeast? Because in the Passover, which is associated with the Exodus, they were told that they were to eat bread without yeast because they would not have time to wait. They were to sit down with their running shoes on, their staff in their hand, bread without yeast, because they were going to go, 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 baby. I was asked this question just the other day um, in one of my classes. They were going to go, go, go. That, that's what the yeast is about here. So for, in perpetuity, they are going to celebrate this festival for seven days. They're to make bread without yeast. And it became a thing where actually Jewish homes were extraordinary. The more, the, even today, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox homes are very rigorous about getting rid of any yeast that there is in the kitchen. There might be the rest of the year because they don't want any contamination uh, from the yeast that they might have just sort of laying around their house, I guess. So, 18. On the first day, this is of the seven-day festival, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Present to Yahweh a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With each bull, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil, with the ram, two-tenths, right? And with each of the seven lambs, one-tenth. Just like in the Sabbath offering. Right? Include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. Atonement. What does atonement mean? At one there you go, Patty. 
Here's the simple, Patty said it, the simplest way, it's at one mint, right? At hyphen one mint, at one mint. It, 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 is a, it is an offering to make atonement for the sins of Israel, to bring God and the Israelites at one. Now, is it, can it fully accomplish that yet? No. Where will that be accomplished? On the cross. And what's, and what's an important symbol in the Gospel of Mark for that atonement having been accomplished by Jesus on the cross when the temple curtain is torn in two in the Gospel of Mark, signifying that the separation between the people and God is now gone. There's no curtain between the holiest of holies and the rest of the temple. A lot, so much symbolism, right? So, um, verse 23. Offer these in addition to the regular morning burnt offering, and this way present the food offering every day for seven days as an aroma pleasing to Yahweh. It is to be offered in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So the Passover is, is set aside. It doesn't, it doesn't work like, like the rest of the year. Now, this isn't going into the Passover dinner and the spreading of the blood around this. Just these are, these are instructions about offerings um, that the people make, make to God. Then we come to what? Your Bible probably has a paragraph divider there that's titled something like the Festival of Weeks. I'm sorry, Maybell, we're at verse 26. Oh, I did. She just knows it. Okay. Yeah. Verse 26. Scott, with I'm just going back a little bit with, okay, this last little bit. We know all the, all the offerings tend to be like this with yes. the exact details of three-tenths of an Three-tenths, two-tenths, one-tenths, yep, yep. Is that, again, the whole thing of, of an orderly thing? keeping it consistent so that people in years to come always know exactly how it was supposed to be. Why do you think God goes into such detail on mixing the flour with the oil and how much of the wine? Um, I understand the number of hour, of uh, animals that are being sacrificed, but it really gets to this fine, fine detail when we're talking about, you know. Well, think about it. It I mean, let's think about it for a moment. It's, it is about order, not chaos, and having very detailed instructions enables you to know exactly what you should do without any ambiguity. You know, whenever I've... <laughs> what comes to mind is my attempts to put certain uh, toy sets together for my kids when they were little. What did I appreciate? Very detailed instructions so I could get it right. Because getting it right matters. This is about God. There's no room for sloppiness. There's no room for just kind of, let's just throw it together and see if it works. It would be like trying to bring something home from Ikea and put it together without the instructions. Oh. Or in my case, even with the instructions, actually, and you you would you so there's nothing casual here. There's nothing 
undisciplined here. There's nothing disorderly here. It is all very carefully set out. It is it is like the building of the tabernacle. God doesn't say, well, just get some of this and get some of this and get some of that and kind of throw it together into something that sort of looks like this. No, it's carefully detailed. The measurements, the materials, everything. God is not a God to be taken casually. When people take God casually, it results in a bad end. In a bad end. And there's story after story in Scripture about people who do take God casually. And it leads to a bad end. So this is the high and holy God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the world, the creator of humankind. And so it's very carefully set out. They know well exactly what to do. They can't ever plead ignorance about this. Is that true, Patty? I agree with you. Maybell just put on there, God is a God of order. Yeah, indeed. It's a good thing to remember that God is a God of order. Um, if you were to ask, you know, like if we had Isaac Newton here and asked him what that meant, he would say, well, that's why, that's why science works. That's why if you, re if you have an experiment and you repeat it a second time in exactly the same and do it in exactly the same way as you did it the first time, you're going to get exactly the same result. Because God is a God of order. That is like fundamental to science. If it didn't work like that, you would have no science. You would just have dumb, blind luck stumbling over yourself, you know, one, one thing after another. So, okay, so... Festival of Weeks, verse 26. Now this is in the early, this is early harvest, so this is like June. Pentecost, the day we, it's a, which is a church holiday, right? It's a big Sunday, it's the day, it's the Acts 2 Sunday where the church is created and, and so forth by, by the Holy Spirit. That festival, the reason there's so many people packed into Jerusalem is because it is the Festival of Weeks, or the Festival of Pentecost, which comes 50, as in Pente, Pentagram, Pentagram, Pentagon, 50 days after Passover. On the day of first fruits, meaning early harvest, when you present to Yahweh an offering of new grain during the Festival of Weeks, hold a sacred assembly, and do no regular work. These days are set apart. They're different. Verse 27. Present a burnt offering of, now we almost expect it, right? Two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, as an aroma pleasing to Yahweh. With each bull there is to be a grain offering of what? Now we already, we, we know what this is going to be. Three-tenths of an ephah, of the finest flour mixed with oil, with the ram two tenths, and with each of the lambs one tenth. We know the drill, right? Can't plead ignorance. It's orderly. The priests know exactly what to do. The Levites know exactly what to gather. 
Verse 30, include one male goat to make atonement for you. There we go. Never letting the need for atonement get out of view. It's easy for people to forget that we humans are a sinful lot. We live in a time when much of the culture has forgotten that. Much of the culture that we live in, and much of the culture, particularly in the West, has forgotten that. And it is to our ruin because we don't understand what's happening. We don't have an explanation for what's going wrong unless we understand that the wrongness begins within each of us. that there is something wrong with us. It's like I've taught many times, and remember the old, some of you are, are my age, remember the old book from the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay? It's a lie. We're not okay. No amount of therapy is going to make us okay. They can't eradicate this darkness that's in the human heart. If it could, well, the world wouldn't be in the state that it's in. And the world is on fire right now. I had lunch with a friend of mine who's even older than I am and had a wonderful career in New York, um, knows all kinds of people, and we just looked at each other. We sat down to lunch. This was a few weeks ago. We just said, the world is on fire, isn't it? And we both said, yeah, well... What's the underlying problem? This rebellion against God, this, this sinful heart and an unwillingness to acknowledge it and an unwillingness to, to, embrace, to embrace a solution to this, the way out of this, and who has a name, Jesus. So, yeah. So that's the Festival of Weeks. Okay, now we have another festival. This begins chapter 29. This is the Festival of Trumpets. I'm not going to read this whole paragraph. I don't even, I don't think I know if I ever heard of the Festival of Trumpets. There are other festivals in the Israelite calendar. The three biggies, though, are three that you should know. It will help your reading of the New Testament to understand that you have Passover in the early spring. Hence, when does it happen? Easter. Right, it's Probably March, Easter. April, late March, early April, Passover. Then you have um, week, weeks or Pentecost. Those are just two, two synonyms. The Festival of Weeks, Festival of Pentecost, which happens like early June. Early harvest, if you're an agricultural person. And then we have the late harvest one, that we'll be coming to, which is called Tabernacles or Booths. It's called Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, because it is the reminder of the nomadic existence of the Israelites. I'll talk more about that when we get there. But then there are others. A Festival of Trumpets. I think there's a Festival of Lights. and I don't try to keep them all straight because I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't care enough. But those three, those three are the big ones. So, chapter 29, verse 1. Can I 
ask you then? Sure, Patty. So Hanukkah is not considered one of the festivals. What would that just be? Just uh, well, a Han- and it being it's not one of the major ones. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. The only reason Hanukkah has a significance that it does is because it happens at Christmas time. I mean, it is important and all of that, but it's not going to—it's not spelled out in the Bible because it commemorates something that happened after the after the Old Testament was finished, right? The last book to be written in the Old Testament is probably explicitly written after that is is Malachi. Daniel comes from the time that Hanukkah commemorates, but it doesn't address the um, the Maccabean revolt. So no, Hanukkah's okay. it's not it's it's I don't think if I think I've had my Jewish friends here, at least the Orthodox or ultra Orthodox, they would say, No, we celebrate Hanukkah, but it's really because, you know, you Christians do so much with Christmas that we, you know, do so much with Hanukkah. But it's like it's like for us Christians. What is the biggest what is the biggest day in the Christian calendar? Easter. It's Easter, you see. It's not Christmas, it's Easter. Uh, for th- almost 300 years, we don't have any records of Christians even celebrating Christmas. We are Easter people. But there you go. So the three big ones, though, are pa- Passover, Weeks, and Tabernacles. Okay, so now we come to the Day of Atonement. Chapter 29, verse 7. Now, the Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur, and that is usually in October. It is a big day. Big day. On the tenth day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly. You must deny yourselves and do no work. Present as an aroma pleasing to the Lord a burnt offering of... Guess what? One young bull, not two, one ram and several male lambs, seven male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With the bull, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah. With the ram, two-tenths with each of the lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the sin offering for atonement and the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. The Day of Atonement becomes this really crucial day. Um, it becomes a day when the high priest of Israel would go into the temple. I'll put up my temple picture here. I have one. Why not use it? Let me back up one. He would go into the tabernacle or go into the temple and, and utter the name of God. Before the high, in the holiest of holies, utter the name of God. When the temple is destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, there was no place for the high priest to go offer atonement, and there was no place for the high priest to go and say the name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so the truth is, over the last 2,000 years, 
the pronunciation of God's name has really been lost to us. We estimate it. We, you know, I usually pronounce, since it comes in the English sort of Y-H, W-H is, is Yahweh. Um, but do we really know? Can we really know? Um, we can't because it has been it has been lost. The pronunciation has because nobody could say it because it was something only said by the high priest. So Yom Kippur is a really big Jewish day. That was why it was such a terrible thing that in the modern era, in I guess this was in the late 60s, the Yom Kippur War, maybe late 60s, early 70s, when Israel's enemies attacked them on Yom Kippur. It would be like attacking America on Christmas or attacking America on Easter or whatever. Um, attacking Israel on Yom Kippur. Yeah, whack, wow. So, anyway, the Day of Atonement. So, any, um, let's see, Nancy Pratt, Presbyterians would say that it is done decently and in order. I like that. Mm -hmm. Decently and in order, yes, yes. Um, Patty and I are go to traditional worship. If you go to traditional worship, you see that most weeks it's done decently and in order. And I always go in whenever I'm a liturgist. I go in with a notebook, and it's all laid out exactly how things are going to happen. I don't have to guess. I know what I'm supposed to do. Um, when I was a boy, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I have my Episcopal Book of Common Prayer behind me, and in it are all the instructions for all the services carefully laid out. When I was an acolyte, and um, the bit I learned how to assist with communion, it all was very exacting. When the bishop came, I, I would assist the bishop, and it would all be exactly, I had to do exactly the right thing in exactly the right steps decently and in order. There we go. Um, it's a fundamental reflection of Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. It's nice and orderly, going from good to indeed very good by the end. So, anything else anybody want to add? Thank you, Nancy. Maybell. All right. Let me get drinking my water. I just thought it was interesting about the, the festivals, like I said. I, I'm not going to talk any more about it. I, and I guess it is because um, Christmas in 2024 is, yes, it is Christian for those of us that are Christian, but it has become so very secular, and in the, especially in the last few years. Hanukkah stuff is everywhere. When I, It's not the display that where I can buy as much of it is you know, out in the store, but right next to the Christmas stuff, there's the Hanukkah stuff. But it's and not instituted by God in Scripture. I, I gotcha. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it kind of in the And which, which is true, really, in. for Christmas and Easter. They're not instituted by God either in Scripture, right? Yes. But um, you can understand why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, and it is a celebration because it celebrates the, the Maccabean Revolt, um, the success of that for a while, yeah. 
and um, but no, not compare. It's it, it's not. If you're going to read your Bible well, the three to remember: Passover, weeks, yes. and Tabernacles. And just write them down and come back and check yourself once in a while with them. When you read the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, pay attention to when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem for certain festivals. And, um, of course, culminating in his coming to Jerusalem for Passover. Because it's during Passover, the Passover festival that Jesus is crucified. So we will... Um, begin the section on the Festival of Tabernacles. We will not read all of it because, again, it just gets very, very repetitious. Um, Tabernacles is in the fall. On the 15th day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is verse 12 of chapter 29. Celebrate a festival to Yahweh for seven days. Present an aroma pleasing to the Lord, a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of 13 young bulls, Ooh. two rams, and 14 male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With each of the 13 bulls, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, the finest flour mixed with oil. With each of the two rams, two-tenths, and with each of the 14 lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. Now, just, we'll just go a little bit further. 17, verse 17. On the second day, offer 12 young bulls compared to what, Patty? What did we just offer on the first day? Well, I'm looking at the bulls. I'm trying to find them. 13. 13 of them. Now it's yes. 12. Oh, my god. Two goodness. rams and 14 lambs. Yep. All without defect. Yep. And the male goat, the grain offerings, and the rest. Third day, 11 bulls, wow. 2 rams, and 14. Fourth day, 10 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs. Verse 26. On the fifth day, 9 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 male lambs. On the 29th day, wait, not on the 29th day. <laughs> verse 29, verse 29. On the sixth day, Offer eight bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs. Okay? And each time there's this male goat as a sin offering. Just that can't ever be out of view. Verse 32, on the eighth day, hold a closing special ceremony and do no regular work. Present as an aroma pleasing to the Lord a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of one bull, one ram, seven male Lambs a year old, all without defect. With the company grain offerings and drink offerings. Include one male goat as a sin offering. In addition to what you vow and your free... This is verse 39. Sorry, skipping verse 39. In addition to what you vow and your free will offerings, offer these to Yahweh at your appointed festivals. Your burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, and fellowship offerings. Moses told the Israelites all that Yahweh commanded him. So God tells Moses, and Moses tells the people. And all of this is then, you know, at some point written down, specified. Um, the priests 
accomplish the sacrifices supported by the Levites, who are there like their assistants, the ones who get everything all ready for the priests to do, to undertake these, these rituals. Okay? So, offerings. Now we're going to talk about vows. I found all this stuff pretty interesting. It's it, The first thing you're going to have to remember, this is a patriarchal culture. So don't think that men and women, boys and girls, are going to be treated the same way or viewed the same way. That's just not... That's our world, kind of. It's not their world. If it is our world, it's certainly not their world. So, verse, chapter 30, verse 1. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what Yahweh commands. When a man makes a vow to Yahweh, or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Your word is your bond, right? And when you make that word, when you make a pledge to God, baby, you better keep it. Verse 3, when a young woman still living in her father's household, okay, she's a young woman and she's living in her father's household, makes a vow to Yahweh or obligate yourself by a pledge and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself, will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vow or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. Yahweh will release her because her father has forbidden her. So what do you think is going on there, Patty? Well, um, gosh, Scott, this one kind of gets me. Well, it does. Of course, again, it is it it is that the father can override anything that this you know young woman has he said. He can he can save her from herself. Yes. Right. Yes. He can step and say, "Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! She was being you know impractical and unrealistic, and and thus consequently." You know, no, she's, she's, um, it doesn't, it doesn't really count. We're not going to, we can't really hold her to it. Because she didn't really, you know, I mean, she's a girl. I mean, really? What really, she's a girl. I mean, that's why, that's what I think this is about. Because you're going to find out that there, there isn't the equivalent treatment of sons in this. Let's go ahead, go a little further. Verse 6. If she marries... I guess still thinking of that same young woman, after she makes a vow or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her then her vows or the pledges by which she obligates herself will stand. So imagine this young woman, she made a really rash promise or a rash obligation and so... She um, then gets married and 
The husband hears about it, but he doesn't say anything about it. She is now on the hook. But so are we talking about like a pledge and offering to give all these various animals and things like that up in sacrifice? What kind of vow or pledge are we talking about? A vow or pledge that you would make to God, to somebody. Your word is your bond. People, people, you know, used to be people were very careful about the vows or pledges that they would make because they would feel obligated to keep them. The classic story is the vow of Jephthah in the book of Judges. When Jephthah says to God, well, you know, God, if you'll give me victory in this battle, when I arrive home, the first, you know, I will sacrifice to you, you know, the first thing I see. And he gets home, and what's what's the first thing he sees? His own daughter, Jephthah's daughter, whose name is not captured in the book of Judges. And he is obligated. So, chapter 8. But what's primarily in view here, of course, is our vows to God. But, you know, what do we... What do we do in a courtroom? Used to. I don't I guess they don't do this. I don't know what. You used to put your hand on a Bible and take a vow, right, to tell the truth. Yes. You know, before God. Well, there we go. That's certainly encompassed by this. So, verse 8. Now, this is now, but if her husband, this is of the young woman who's maybe made a rash promise, and now he, he the husband has heard about it, if he forbids her, when he hears about it, which I take to be much after the fact, perhaps, he nullifies the vow that obligates her or the rash promise by which she obligates herself and Yahweh will release her. So if you're a woman who makes a rash promise or a young woman who makes a rash promise, you there's a path out of it if your father or husband forbid it and nullify the rash promise. Because you know how girls are. Oh, right. Right. That's the gist of it. (laughs) Isn't it really? Yes. Verse 9, any vow or obligate, because when I was first prepping for today and I was reading through this, because like I told you, I never taught the book of Numbers before. So I'm reading through this and I kept waiting to come across the parallel passages about sons. Because sons can be just as rash about as daughters can be. It's not there, though. It's not there. It just reflects a view of women that was very much the view of the time then. It was actually the view by men of women for until when? <laughs> Pretty recently, actually. We watched that. Remember that? We watched that show, Lessons in Chemistry? Yes. Right? Yes. What could men do? What could women do? Right. That, by the way, that's on Apple TV. It's a six-part series called Lessons of Chemistry. It's really good. It's um, it's very good. Very good. Anyway, okay. Um, verse 9. Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or a divorced woman will be binding on her. Why? Because she's got no man. She's got no man to bail her out. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I got out of it. Oh, man. Verse 10. 
If a woman living with her husband makes a vow or obligates herself by a pledge under oath, and her husband hears about it, but says nothing to her and does not forbid her, then all her vows of the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. Same thing. Verse 12. But if her husband nullifies them when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that came from her lips will stand. This, her this husband is has a lot of space in the Bible, this whole thing. This oh, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Her husband has nullified them, and Yahweh will release her. You know, so let me let me put on my thinking cap for a moment. Is this not a way for men to make sure they don't get stuck with some rash vow or promise that their wife or daughter makes? Yes. Because they're just women. Yeah, I think it is. Verse 14. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows of the pledges binding on her. If he doesn't say anything to her, it, it, it's going to be good. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when he hears about them. If, however, he nullifies them some time after when he hears about them, then he must bear the consequences of her wrongdoing. Well, that's interesting. So, He's heard about him. He doesn't say anything for whatever reason it might be. He knows about it. Six months later, he says, nah, I forbid that. I nullify that or whatever it would be. Well, it's too late, Jack. Now you're responsible for whatever the consequences are of what your wife promised. Verse 16, these are the regulations Yahweh gave Moses concerning relationships between a man and his wife and between a father and his young daughter still living at home. Now, is it, is, I mean, it is, it is odd to me to find these in the pages of Scripture. Yes. So... It is a reminder that this, these writings are about these people's life with God. It's about their life with God. And they are, they do come and reflect, come from and reflect the world these people live in. Just as our writings today, whether it's in the New York Times, Atlantic Magazine, posted on Politico or whatever else might come to mind, they reflect. All those refly, writings reflect our time. They have to because we are all, everyone's a person of their own time, even if they want to deny it. We all are. So they reflect the time that, that they were in. But they are, they are scriptures. So, Patty, if you were a preacher mm -hmm. and you were handed chapter 30 and said, hey, you young preacher person, I would like you to preach us a sermon on chapter 30 in the book of Numbers. What would you do? Well, first of all, I would start out reminding people of when this was written and for the people that it was written for. Um, you know, because that's, that's important. Um, I think if it was written for today, I don't know how God would feel about this, but I'm sure that there are a lot, and this is not my case at all, but I'm sure there are a lot of women out there who feel like their husbands make pretty stupid mistakes 
that I'm glad you exempted me from I, I that. I did. Norman. I exempted you from that. <laughs> Makes pretty stupid, you know, promises or sign contracts or do things that they want to throw their hands up and say, "Why didn't you talk to me about this?" And I, you know, I imagine even back then there were women like that that felt the same thing. Why did you put us out there like that? We're so exposed. I don't want to use the exposed word, but why did you tell God we could do that or whatever? I would I would make sure this is the word of God. It is coming through Moses um, from God directly. But I would make sure that it was something that people understood that this was done in a place and time that is very different than where we are right now. That's great, Patty. Thank you. Really, I mean that. And... I might add to that foundation that this chapter speaks to us about vows and promises made before God that they that they matter. We do. They do matter. But we are broken people and rash promises need not stand. See, that's what Jephthah should have taken. He should have read chapter 30, read it with a bit of creativity and said, look, my problem here is, yes, I'm a guy, but I made a really rash promise. Does God want me to keep this rash promise and sacrifice my own daughter to God? Of course not. The fact that you make a stupid promise doesn't mean you have to keep that promise. Now here it's very much cast in a patriarchal role and it's focused on women because women, you know, they make... But it it's, doesn't take much understanding to realize that men do as well. And so it's to me it's a chapter about, you know, yeah, the vows and promises you make matter, but, you know, there are stupid ones and rash ones that we do. And you, you don't have to be bound by them. Because a God who loves us doesn't want us to do rash and stupid things. God loves Jephthah. God loves Jephthah's daughter. God does not want Jephthah's daughter to be sacrificed, her life to be taken because her father made a rash vow. Anyway, there we go. I might take and put those things all together and, and in 20 minutes be done. Okay, so my friends, let's see. The vows, we've done offerings, we've done vows. Oh my, yes. Now we're to the Midianites. So here is the map. I'm going to go back. Let me go back a slide, I think, from here. Here's the map. So the Israelites are camped out at the north end of this, the Shittim. An unfortunate name says my eight-year-old self. To the south is Moab, and to the south of Moab are the Midianites. Now, if we look back, if you would, to chapter 25. Okay? Okay. In chapter 25, this is so interesting, that in my NIV study Bible, the 
the writers of the of this study Bible, not not this is not scripture. This is just little par, little headings that the you know the folks at Zondervan put there. At the beginning of chapter twenty five, the little heading is Moab seduces Israel because it goes on to tell the story of these Moabite and Midianite women who are taking up with Israelite men. And that's where you had the one Midianite woman by name. Uh, what was her name? I've already turned from that, that page. Um, what was her name? Here I am. Cosby. Probably, maybe I should pronounce it Cosby, just so we don't get confused. But the, the man is uh, Zimri and the woman, the Midianite woman, the daughter of a tribal chieftain is Cosby, I'll call her. Um, and the spear, right? This one guy picks up the spear and throws it between the two of them and they're both killed. That story, and, and then the plague comes, right? Because the Israelites have all taken up with these Moabite and Midianite women. That story is all about the temptation of Israel to follow pagan gods and goddesses. And it will be the story of Israel throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, which is filled with stories of pagan idols, Asherah poles, the worship of Baal, altars to pagan gods and goddesses on the mountaintops, uh, um, sacred golden calves being built um, and formed and so forth. It is, it is the great it is the great sin of Israel. The abandonment of God and the chasing after these imaginary imaginary, right? Because they don't exist. These imaginary pagan gods and goddesses of various sorts who are worshipped by the pagan peoples around the Israelites. So the Israelites were always at risk of being, to use the word here, being seduced. Um, Solomon has an enormous harem, 300 wives, 700 concubines, um, and we're told they're all foreigners, and they all bring in their own gods and goddesses with them into Israel. It, it's like when I teach this, I usually teach it is is that being the moment that the that the the great unwinding of Israel begins because it will get worse and worse and Israel will get will get weaker and weaker and you have civil war and on and on it goes until the Assyrians sweep away ten tribes and the Babylonians overrun Jerusalem and destroy the temple that Solomon built. It's this it's this chasing after other gods and goddesses. So that's what our eyes are on in chapter 25. And the peoples that are the threat in this are the Moabites and the Midianites. And so in chapter 29, we are going to be back to a war. Violence. Numbers is actually a pretty violent book. Not as violent as Joshua, but a pretty violent book because of these of these wars. And 
you know, we come to them and we wonder, well, what, what can I learn from these about God's teachings regarding war? For the first 300, first 400 years of Christianity, that was not a question Christians had to wrestle with because they weren't in control of anything. They weren't posed the questions about, can we go to war? Under what circumstances should we go to war? It was Augustine in about 400 AD who first formulated the doctrine of a just war. A just war. A war that is just and right in God's eyes. And my illustration of this is grounded in Augustine's observation that to understand just war, you begin with God's, with the love of neighbor. Love of neighbor is the beginning of understanding just war. That's where that's 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 the that's the doctrine, as it were, that that Augustine grounds himself in, and imagine it this way. Here's, here's an example that I think is a good one. It's because we all know the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Yes. So suppose the 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 Samaritan comes on the scene after the robbers are gone and the priests and Levites have walked by, and the Samaritan lenders all this aid. Suppose the Samaritan comes on the scene when the robbers are beating the guy. Not after the fact, but during it. And suppose the Samaritan has the means to stop it at the risk of violence to the robbers, to himself. Should he jump in with violence to put an end to the beating of this man? Or should he sit down on a hillside and wait to see if the guy survives? There's the question, isn't it? It is. It is. It is the question. It is the question of... You see this sometimes in the news where the police... There's, there, there's a guy with a gun threatening one or more people. And there's a sniper, a police sniper, who ends up shooting the guy because they believe the guy is about to kill others. Is that the lesser of two evils? Is that an, is there evil in the act of the police sniper? Is there evil in the act of the Samaritan who might rescue the robber from getting beaten? I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. There will be someone who might take the case, yes, but I, I don't think so. So we would kind of like to find that discussion or that kind of thinking when we come to the Old Testament. You know what? We don't. We find different depictions of war making, different understandings of, of what war is and the consequences of it and the participation or non-participation of God in it. I was reading a commentary on the book of Numbers and the author said, look, even in the book of Numbers, there's at least three different theories of war making, as it were, for the Israelites. It's frustrating because we want there to be one. We want it to be clear. We want to be able to state it in three sentences. <laughs> but it's, it's not. And um, 
So in this particular story, there is one theory, and we'll we'll see the way that 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 plays out. Um, I don't know if you'll find it surprising or not. Don't know. Um, we'll at least I think start it. Um, not today. It's what time is it? Almost four fifteen. Oh, okay, it is. Then we will come back to chapter 30 next week um, with that little introduction. right? I, I don't know. Where am I? I'm having my trouble getting my... Yeah, we're still started 31. I've had to work correctly. Chapter 31. Yes, we'll come back. We'll begin next week at 31-1. The War Against the Midianites. Yes. Okay, I'm coming around. Okay. I didn't realize my introduction would take me all the way to 4.15, but there we go. It's probably just as well we didn't start it. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at what happened last week at Lakewood Church, that somebody went in with a gun shooting up, and right before a, a very crowded service was going to take place. So you, I don't know, it just seems hard to believe that God would have wanted more lives to be taken by you know, person. you know, one of my favorite scholars is a man named Richard Hayes. I yes. mention him often. And mm -hmm. in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, one of his chapters is on violence in the defense of justice. Can we use violence in the defense of justice? Mm -hmm. He makes the case for no, the negative. We should not use violence even in the defense of justice. But you know what he does, Patty? He admits he gets a free ride. Yeah. Because he lives in a place there in the Carolinas where he and his family, little girls, are all protected by the police and the rest. Mm -hmm. So what becomes an intellectual exercise, maybe even a heartfelt exercise, meets the realities of the world. So anyway, okay, food for thought next week. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, all right. All in the book of Numbers. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> All righty. We're glad you all were here today with us. Hopefully some of you will be with us tomorrow for um, We Continue in Acts. Yes. And uh, also tomorrow Which afternoon. Which is its own wild ride. What, what's else happening tomorrow afternoon? It's happy no hour idea. at Andrew's Pizza at 4.30. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm sure I, yeah. I'm sure I knew it on one level, but it didn't process that. But that's just that a gathering, it's... and that w there was no no charge involved in this. Uh, if you haven't registered and you still can, just go online and do it. Otherwise, everybody's just going to pay for their own pizza, and it's just a good way to get to meet new people from St. Andrew. And right. there are so many new people. Right. So, Okay, alrighty. very good. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful sunshine that we have today. Lord, we are so grateful for it. We know we have a number of days that are coming up in the future here that are going to just be fantastic. And we are so blessed, God, for that. We thank you, God, as you help Scott lead us through this book of numbers and so many stories and just learning points kind of jump out at us every week when we least kind of expect it in places where we can all discuss and um you know, sometimes we're in agreement with each other and sometimes we're not, but that's okay. This is such a safe place and we are we are grateful, God, for this this way that we can talk.
talk together about scripture. We ask you, Lord, to please watch over us through the coming week and our families. Keep us healthy, God, and safe. And we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Amen. Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody. See y'all.